Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, so this episode we'll be finishing up our look at Fungi from Yugoth, picking up with uh, sonnet number 19 out of 36. Uh, this was published originally in 1943 in the book, the collection of Lovecraft's writing called Beyond the Wall of Sleep, uh, published by Arkham House. It was originally written, however, uh, in the winter of 1929 to 1930, uh, around the same time he was writing The Mound and conceiving uh, stories like The Whisper in Darkness. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so what we talked about last time was, you know, kind of the discussion, the debate, if you will, over whether this uh, collection of 36 sonnets can be considered like a, a con conventional kind of narrative story. There seems to be some kind of debate and disagreement about that. I'm rather agnostic about it. I think there's there's elements that do have a continuity through the story, but also think if you're going to try to sweat it to make every single stands or every single sonnet line up with the previous one into a coherent narrative, I think you're going to be constructing certain things and adding elements that aren't really necessarily there. Um, now, thematically, what I've been focusing on are issues like the sea. I think very much like the Dream One stories, this is uh, a set of, of poems that really connect quite deeply and significantly to the sea. And that's something I think that runs through a lot of Lovecraft's works, of, works, of course. Uh, we talked about um, memory and forgetting. And I think this... Uh, these are really all about memory. They're very much like the Dreamland stories in that, you know, someone remembers something from their youth and then through dreaming or through some other gateway, try to recreate that. That's certainly what's going on in the dream quest of unknown Kadath, at least on the on the surface. Uh, so dreaming is a theme here um, and how dreaming alienates us from our modern world that we live in. Right. Uh, once we kind of experience that, it's hard to go back. It's hard to go back to quite the same person. Um, and then I also talked about how this set of poems really contribute, I think, to Lovecraft's uh, world building that he engages in really in the last, you know, seven, eight years of his career before he died in stories like At the Mountains of Madness and Shadow Over Time and uh, Witch House, Dreams of the Witch House, Whisper in the Darkness, uh, to a certain degree, Shadow Over Innsmouth, where that he's really trying to connect a lot of the things and ideas he had into a more, uh, you know, kind of a what we all call a mythos, right? Now, I do think there's elements earlier in his work that move towards that. I think his geography, uh, the geography of New England that he worked out was something that came first. I would say that's even before the world building is this idea of a, of a kind of geography of New England tied to the sea, but with these different... Um, kind of places stuck in time, Providence, Arkham, Innsmouth, Kingsport, you know, these Dunwich, the backcountry areas, they're all sort of uh, recognizable places. As we saw from the letters, he actually says these are drawn from New England itself, but he has sort of mythicized them. And it's not surprising then in Fungi from Yugoth how we kind of explore geography, uh, certainly in the first half. It's a little bit less strong in the second half. Um, but certainly in the first half, there's a lot of exploring actual the geography of New England. He visits our narrator, such as he visits, for, for instance, uh, Innsmouth. And that Innsmouth is very uh, similar to the Innsmouth we see in Shadowver Innsmouth, even if it's not directly connected to the tale. Um, there are cultists in both, but uh, other than that, it's, it's more about the setting and the mood is, is similar. So I'm not going to try to repeat 
any narrative here. Uh, basically, all that happens is our narrator finds a book. He wants to uh, remember something from his past, a certain image, a, a, an urban setting, kind of like Carter and Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. But instead of dreaming, he initially finds a book. Uh, he opens this book, escapes with it, steals it. And through this book, he's able to access different um, vistas, I guess. Um, and then there's kind of a guide of sorts, which seems to be an avatar of Nairal Apotep, um, you know, servant of Azathoth. But, you know, it gets kind of fuzzy. Maybe it's a little dreamlike in that way where you have different things that don't quite connect together quite well. Right. It's it's more of it's at least how I experience dreams. Usually maybe some people are better at the narrative dreams, but. Um, where the, the character saying it comes and goes, but there's these side discussions and experiences. And a lot of these work as little mini stories, some quite good. And had he developed those into full length stories, it would have been, I think, solid stories. But um, as such, we just got these sonnets for some of these tales. All right. So the last one we looked at was the Gardens of Gardens of Ing, where he remembers an ancient garden uh, in Coast by walls um he has some kind of memory of it of an ancient garden very beautiful but he gets there and it's decayed and he can't get in because there's no gate anymore so that leads us to uh sonnet number 19 the bells so this one's also about memory um pretty specifically he says uh he, he for years he heard uh these bells um now the location of this it's, uh, it's in Innsmouth. It's discussed. Uh, he says very explicitly here that these, um, this bell tower uh, that he hears, or initially he doesn't know where its source is, but he is able to discover it in Innsmouth. Quote, Of quiet Innsmouth where the white gulls tarried around an ancient spire that I once knew. End quote. So he has some memory of Innsmouth. He seems to have experienced it before he visited there. You, you get it if you take this as a consistent narrative, which you don't really have to do. But uh, some people certainly like to do that. Um, now, what's uh, the twist here is he kind of pursues this and follows up on this, um, but now it's underwater. The tide has overtaken the coast and overtaken the spire. And so the bells continue to toll, but, quote, from the sunless tides that pour through sunken valleys on the Dead Sea floor. So that's now underwater. So the sea has overtaken uh, the land this is reminiscent i think of the crawling chaos which is a revision lovecraft wrote one of his first revisions um so that's what's going on there uh so next we got the night gaunts um sonnet number 20 this is uh of course we met the night gaunts before in the dream quest of anon kadath this is the next appearance of them they kind of function the same way as they do in the dream quest of unknown kadath in that they're um black horned winged creatures without faces and that don't make sounds these are things that apparently lovecraft actually dreamed that's where he came up with them um but then they take you know, they'll take you places in the dreamlands right so that's what happens here um they snatch them off take them to various places um and it's it's kind of cool he says this is pretty awesome you can even see the puff shoggoth this, this may be the first mention of a shoggoth uh, I don't know if these are the same concept of a Shoggoth that we get in, at the Mountains of Madness. Um, Puff Shoggoth, Splash in Doubtful Sleep. Maybe similar. Um, but he's a bit freaked out by them because, quote, if only they would make some sound or wear a face where faces should be found, end quote. So their form, their biology is a bit um, 
upsetting to our, our narrator, but they are a, a means of travel and a means of exploration and, and, and investigation. So they're, they're a bit, uh, just like in the Dream Quest of Anunkadath, their, their role is a bit ambiguous. They, they kind of help Carter, but they also are kind of freaky and, and take him around and, and serve, a, serve a function. So this, this, this little sonnet is more of a shout out to that creature. Um, the next one, 21, Nilo-Opetep, which I still can't really pronounce very well. Um, this actually is kind of retelling the story uh, that we covered w- really, really early on in this podcast. Um, if we read it, uh, it starts, And at last from inner Egypt came a dark, strange dark one to whom the f- fellows bowed, silent and lean and cryptical proud. He wrapped in fabrics red as sunset flame, Throngs pressed around, frantic for his commands, but leaving could not tell what they heard. End quote. This is very much what happens in the story, right? Where this creature from Egypt, this kind of supernatural being, kind of performs before crowds, performs some kind of mixture of science and magic and awes them. And then this is some kind of um, harbinger for the end of the world because the poem here ends. Then crushing what he chanced to mold and play, the idiot chaos blew earth's dust away. The idiot Chaos being uh, Azathoth, which the connection between these two gods is established in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So, again, you know, a little bit build, world building here, uh, kind of establishing this lore. Um, but mostly this seems to retell that story in a very simplified form. Um, now, the next one is a continuation. If you kind of see these two gods as connected, and it's called Azathoth, uh, 20, it's 22. Of course, there's a short story called known as Azathoth, which was like a first draft, a first attempt at writing what would be Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath that would have maybe been a story centered more on Azathoth. And of course, Azathoth is in Dream Quest. So it does sort of serve as a, as a first draft. Some people kind of read it as a standalone story. But here we have another attempt at, you know, a work of art uh, titled Azathoth. Um, so this is more of a description of of him, uh, the mindless void, uh, the demon bore me past the brush clusters of dimension space till neither time nor matter stretched before me, but only chaos without form or place. This is the, this is the, the central God who's just an, uh, uh, the idiot God of chaos, right? At the center of the universe. That's kind of how he's been described before. Um, we see his followers, shapeless bat things flopping and fluttering around that. And then we get this demon who's this, I think this messenger, because this term demon is the name given for this guide our narrators had consistently through these poems. Um, He claims to be the messenger of Azathoth. So the demon kind of reveals himself as a servant of Azathoth. Um, So the next one I kind of like, 23, Mirage. Um, So this sonnet... um, it's got a great beginning here because he says, like, I don't know if this exists, but it's something I experienced many times. It's like, maybe you've had this with dreams. Maybe you've had this with ideas in your head. Because you know how memory works is we remember kind of our last time remembering it, right? So sometimes you have a dream and if you think back on it, often it, 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 it gets real to a degree, but you can't really prove it ever happened. This has happened to me several times. Anyways, maybe I'm crazy, um, but I don't think I am. Um... 
Yeah, so it's described as uh, a lost world floating dimly on time stream, and yet I see it often, violent misted and shimmering in the back of some vague dream. There were strange towers and curious lapping rivers, labyrinths of wonder and low vaults of light and bow-crossed skies of flame, like that which quivers wistfully just before a winter's night. Um, so he sees this town, he sees this village, but it's just this unknown. It's just kind of locked in, in memory. It's a mirage of, of, of a memory which is a great way to describe this kind of deja vu experience, I think. So it's a rather nice one. I really like that, that sonnet. Next, we have 24, The Canal. Um, so here we're presented again with another deserted city. That's kind of a running motif throughout here. Seas and, and deserted cities, again and again here. Um, this one is evil. Uh, we've seen cities that have been described as paradises uh, throughout this uh, sonnet cycle, but this one is described right away as an evil place. Quote, where tall, deserted buildings crowd along a deep, black, narrow channel reeking strong of frightful things whence oily currents race. So this one works very much like Mirage in that it's also kind of a, a, a hidden memory. It's something that I can't quite claim to. It's, it's kind of a lost city, but he somehow can visualize it. He just realizes that it's evil. I think it ties with Mirage quite well. The setting here is much creepier, though, because we have these deserted buildings, this dead city along this canal, and we got this um, oily currents. Of course, at night, a, a river a canal will look black, right? It won't look, you know, usually those canals are pretty, you know, dark colors anyways. It's, it's not, you know, ocean water. But at night, they really do kind of look like black oils. Um, but it's just kind of trapped in memory. Um, quote, lanes with old walls, half meeting overhead, winds off to the streets one may or may not know. Uh, so that's, a, again, trying to describe this experience of, of not quite being able to grasp some, some memory, but, but having an image of it. Such, so. so that's that. So these two go together pretty well, I think. Um, so next we have uh, 15 St. Toads. So this one's a, a fairly straightforward, more narrative uh, poem um, where we hear people saying, beware St. Toad's crack chime. So we get a warning, but then he runs into this uh, city. It's another kind of one of these abandoned cities, but it's a labyrinth. Uh, he can't find his way around. The streets are all confusing. Uh, there's a river. Um, it's a centuries old town. Um, south of the river where old centuries dream. That's the kind of a description of the place here but he gets warned actually three times by by people now no guidebook tells what's here so it's not a documented town it's not known right it's not something that can be verifiable through evidence like so many of these locations in this in this cycle of poems but the main thing is he gets warned about saying toads crack chimes three times all right of course we've had the bells before we had the bells in Innsmouth and now we have um the, the chimes of St. Toads. We also have uh, the, the flute of Azathoth. Um, if I can find that. Where's it? A cracked fruit clutched on a monstrous paw. One of the followers of Azathoth has a cracked flute and, and the piping sounds that are often associated with Azathoth. Um, but anyways, he's worn three times, but he still sees it. And that's how the poem ends. He sees the black spire of St. Toads. All right, so the next one is called uh, The Familiars. Now, this one is uh, set in Aylesbury Town, too, or connected to it. In fact, we met Aylesbury Town way back in sonnet number 17, Zaman's Hill, uh, which is the, remember, that's the one with this hill. 
that um, that the mailman seems to remember animals dying and kids disappearing up there, but the townspeople not remembering it, the townspeople from Aylesbury. So this is the same town of Aylesbury. So we meet a farmer who is seen by the local population as mad because he reads queer books. So this is very much a Lovecraftian character, someone who's gotten into the occult, you know, start reading the Necronomicon or whatever. Um, he found them in the attic of his place. So they were somehow connected to his family. It's usually only the stuff you find in your attic or stuff maybe in your family history, especially for a farmer, I guess, who inherits the family, uh, the, the land from the family and the homestead. But he starts to look all weird because of his reading of this. The folks begin to be freaked out by his looks. Um, and then uh, they start to hear howling. Um, and it seems that he's howling. And I think that happened before in the story, too. Uh, or in these sonnets where someone was howling. Uh, maybe this is where I remember it from, though. Um, but anyways, the people from Aylesbury basically want to drag him away to to the asylum again, just like they did to uh, the earlier character, uh, the, the guy who dug the well or, cl or closed up the well, right? And he's talking about uh, winged creatures, creatures on great black wings, which may remind us of the Nakons or the followers of Azathoth. All right, so next we have the Elder Pharaohs. This is Sonnet 27. Uh, so this one is set in Lang, which is like in Tibet. It's like, a, or, it's, or it's connected to Tibet in some way. Um, anyways, I'm not sure the whole cosmic geography of all this. Yugoth seemed to be Pluto or that, that ninth planet and, and Lang somewhere associated with the Himalayas. But also I think it's mentioned in the Mountains of Madness. I'll keep that in mind when I get to that story to try to nail down this geography. Because um, it's kind of a new thing I've been thinking about more and more as I go through this series. But um, anyways, uh, so there, there's a, a, a lighthouse here, right? Quote, there shoots at dusk a single beam of light whose far blue rays make shepherds whine in prayer. Nice reference there, I think, to, uh, to the Christmas story, maybe. Um, they say, though none have been there, that it comes out of a pharos in a town of stone where the last elder one lives alone, talking to chaos with the beat of a drum. So one last elder god, you know, continues to live on there. Um, which, of course, the idea of the remnants of some ancient uh, civilization or ancient gods still living among us is an oncurring um, theme here. Now, the thing, this elder one that lives there is described here as wearing a yellow mask, a yellow silken mask, um, and underneath this mask are features which are not of this earth. So next we have uh, number 28, expectancy. This serves as kind of an interlude and a reflection on curiosity, which I really love. Um, basically, I'll just read this first stanza because I think it's such a, a great summary of, of the wonder of that's implicit in kind of these Lovecraftian horror tales. Quote, I cannot tell why some things hold for me a sense of unplumbed marvel to befall or of a rift in horizons wall opening to worlds where only good gods can be. There is a breathless vague expectancy as the vast ancient pomps I half recall or wild adventures uncorporeal ecstasy fraught and as a day free dream. Um, so that's the first stanza of this sonnet. In the second part of the, in, in the, in the last uh, six lines of the sonnet, we get more of a, specific specificity on what this uh, narrator might be searching for 
like sunsets and see strange cities and the sea, hills, lighted towns, old villages, woods, old gardens, half-heard songs, moon's fires, all the stuff we've experienced in this poem up to this point. So it's all kind of a reminder of the different kind of vistas and places that we have traveled to and experienced. It's kind of an old tour of everywhere we've been. Um, but thought, but through it, lure alone makes life worth living, he writes. None gains or guesses what it hints at giving. So there's a bit of um, anxiety about this, right? That there's the straw to it, but not really a clear um, benefit or, or can't really be fully realized in a way. That's this, whatever that hints at giving is referring to. I think maybe actually this revelation is, is hidden from our narrator and our and our explorers now 29 uh, nostalgia kind of builds on this theme but uh, we have the symbol of the birds being our explorers here and we're told that how in autumn time birds fly out to sea uh, trying to find a land um, that they have some memory of just like our seeker just like our journeyer has some memory of something and he seeks to find it trying to find it out, out there somewhere but only finds uh ocean right quote they searched the sea for marks of their old shore for the tall cities white and turreted but only empty water stretch ahead so that at last they turn away once more but then that's not the end of it it's not just a failure but also there's a bit of horror here because they find these alien polyps which i'm not sure what these are um old towers miss their lost remembered song that's the last line of the of the sonnet but you kind of search for this memory and you find only water i think this is kind of a metaphor almost for the entire universe right and our birds are us trying to seek out this this something concrete in in our memory and we get blocked by it right we get blocked by the our inability to to experience it again because the universe's vastness doesn't allow it Right. So I think, again, like some of these go together and I think 18, 28 and 29 go together really nicely. Um, then we have a uh, 30 called um, background. And this one really is is kind of about Lovecraft, I think. Um, basically, our narrator here is saying I can't enjoy new things. I can't enjoy uh, the quote raw new things. I'm drawn to the old things specifically. And you're not surprised to hear what he's drawn to. He's drawn to streets with carved doorways where the sunset beams flooded old fan lights and small window panes and Georgian steeples topped with gilded veins. They were the sights that shaped my childhood dreams. So this is, uh, you know, just Lovecraft once again telling us that he's a fan of the 18th century. But there is, again, a kind of a horrific ending to it where our narrator is left entirely alone because of this. So I think there's a suggestion here of alienation that comes from living out of time or experiencing something outside of one's, um, the, 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 the living world around them, right? If you're living in a different time, if you're in the dreamlands, you're gonna be alienated from our world in some way. Stand alone before eternity is how the poem ends. Okay, so um, the next one is 31, The Dweller. Um, and this one we get kind of, uh, we get, it seems, I don't know if these are the same explorers from before. Remember, we have our narrator, but once in a while, at least twice, I guess, there's a 
some kind of archaeologist or something. Um, back in six, there was the lamp, right? They, there, it seems a group of archaeologists find this lamp and they light it and they see something, some shadow in their tent when they light the lamp. Uh, here, they see an old city. It, it's kind of like the nameless city, right? Quote, it had been old when Babylon was new. None know how long it slept beneath the mound. They find this old prehistoric city, which is something Lovecraft has done before. It happens in the mound. Um, and I think the name was City most clearly. But there's also Raleigh and places like that. But um, they discover it and then they start to lead downwards. They go down into it. Um, quote, and through a choke gate of graven dolomite to some black haven of eternal night where elder signs and primal secrets frown. We cleared a path, but raced in mad retreat when from below we heard those clumping feet, end quote. So the, the fear there and that there's something alive down there and there's something living down there, which is exactly, this is kind of a retelling of the nameless city, except it seems we have um, a group of people, not just one. So next, 32, alienation. Um, alienation, of course, is, I think is a whole theme of the fungi from Ugoth, and it's already been hinted at in a few other stanzas, such as uh, 30, background, and um, I think nostalgia, uh, 29, and many others. Kind of how this seeking, this searching for these lost memories lead us to, to lose our connections to our real world around us. Um, and that's what happens to our narrator in, in alienation. Quote, he walked that morning as an older man and nothing since had looked the same to him. Objects around float nebulous and dim. False phantoms trifle with some vaster plan. His folks and friends are now an alien throng to which he struggles vainly to belong. So this is just clearly alienation from society entirely. So I think we see here in the last third or so of the fungi from Ugoth, you get much more reflection, I think, on Lovecraft's kind of core themes of cosmic horror, of alienation, of nostalgia for the past. Um, and it's really nice, I think. I, what I like about this in part is it, it, it does take us back to kind of those dreamland themes, which I sort of miss. I do think they all connect in, in some way, on some level, but... He, he, he doesn't write like Dream One stories so much at this point in his career. He's doing other stuff, which I think is great. And we're going to start talking about it in the, probably the next episode. But it's, you know, I still miss these, these uh, you know, what he's trying to do in the Dream One tales. Anyways, we're coming to the end, the last four stanzas. Uh, so 33, The Harbor Whistles. So this is kind of an interesting effect. I wonder if he experiences something like this visiting some poor town is he's in another port city and we're getting against the sea again a harbor town and there's these harbor whistles right so i don't know if it's like from the lighthouses or also from the boats but i guess this is for whistles from the boats how these boats communicate right and hail each other right but together they create this quote motley choir each to the other alien and unknown yet all by some obscurely focused force from brooding gulfs beyond zodiac's course fused into one mysterious cosmic drone so together all this creates a choir creates music right uh, but it's, it works at a different level right it's an otherworldly sound so it's through all of these different harbor sounds coming together that we create a new sound that's quote notes that no earthship ever sent so there are moments in this choir that are earthly, but there's others to be clear that, you know, it's, it's not all unearthly, but there's moments that we just can't define where it seems we're, we're thrust out of our waking world into some other 
reality. Um, but it's it's you know this is something that maybe someone's actually experienced, right? If you you hear all these sounds together and they they are interpreted into your by your brain in in some new way that doesn't accurately depict what they are, but it's kind of your main your brain making patterns out of what's there, and, and you it's like how you sometimes hear your name being called in a crowd when it's it's just your brain making a pattern out of the noises it hears around it. Um, but of course, Lovecraft here being a little more cosmic with it, but it's great that the this cosmic noise, this cosmic noise is coming from the sea, right? That that kind of unknowable sea. So uh, then we got 34, Recapture. So our narrator is walking in a half-wooded heath and eventually sees a, like a, a, a mound of sorts. And there's actually lava steps up to the top of it. And he climbs up to the top of the mound. And up there, he sees the stars and he realizes that he's been brought. He's been brought to this location from where he's been before. So he's been recaptured, right? But it's a recapture. He's been captured before by these these stars, right? So maybe we're reminded of Polaris, in which uh, viewing a star leads one to be sort of captured by the the history and the experiences of that star, right? Um, so in steps too vast for any human tread, these are the stairs he's going up. I shrieked and knew what primal star and year had sucked me back from man's dreams transient sphere. So he's sucked back from his dreams, but not necessarily back to Earth, it seems. It's not, he's not necessarily drawn back to Earth. Maybe he is back to Earth. I don't know. But it's a bit ambiguous for me. Then we got 35, Evening Star, which is, of course, uh, going to reflect a little bit more on, on I guess, uh, the night sky. Evening Star, my understanding is Evening Star is Venus, right? So this one's a bit weird. So we have him out in the woods again. Are these the same woods from before? I'm not sure. But he sees this, uh, the evening star. But it's growing. And it's, quote, traces pictures in the quivering air, half memories that have always filled my eyes, end quote. So in a sense, he achieved what he sought out, which was these memories, right, to be actualized. But he sees them in the star. He sees them in the sky. Uh, vast towers and gardens, curious seas and skies of some dim life. These are what he wanted initially, right? This is what he was after for when he when he got the book. Um, but where is this coming from? Quote, but now I knew that though the cosmic dome, those rays were calling from my far lost home. End quote. So he's not on his home. So it's the, the star itself that's tracing these pictures in the, in the skies is his home, is what he's seeking. So he's still distant from it, although he's somehow experiencing it and achieving some resolution here at the end of the cycle of sonnets, but it's still, he's still very distant from this home, which I don't think is Earth. I don't think it's this whatever crummy apartment he, we met in stanza two. <laughs> so uh, the last uh, sonnet is called Continuity, and this sort of links everything together in a way. Um, you know, we got this idea that we have a linked universe that's sort of continuous. Um, quote, a tenuous ether indeterminate yet linked with all the laws of time and space, a faint veiled sign of continuities that outward eye could never quite descry. Um, and then we get the description of how we're able to contact it through hidden keys, such as the book, such as the guide, such as portals, uh, all these things that we experienced in uh, our journey through the fungi from Yugoth. 
and then the whole cycle ends with, it moves me most when slanting sunburns glow in an old farm building set against a hill and paint with life the shapes which linger still from centuries less a dream than this we know. In the strange light, I feel I'm not far from the fixed math whose sides the ages are. So it ends up, we're not that far. Like the previous stanza ended with this very, very distant home, right? This, this goal being far away in the stars. But the fact that the whole universe is sort of connected, it's not that far in the end. At least you can experience things um, a little bit more present in his own existence. That things may be distant and vast and cosmic, but they're also right around the corner. So that's the read through of, 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 of Fungi from Yugoth. I, I think I touched on most of the themes there. I don't think there's much I didn't quite touch on. I think there's a lot here on geography, especially the cosmic geography. I think there's a lot on alienation and, and this kind of questing for memory this, the, and the difficulty of searching for memory, which I think, uh, I do think it's still a very, it's a pretty consistent theme of his uh, forgetting, but it's stronger in his middle work. Like in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, it it's undermines compromise a little bit in works like this. And I think it's compromised in at the Mountains of Madness, where our narrator is kind of laying everything out there, laying everything out for the reader. Will Martha's does the same thing in uh, Whisper and Darkness. There's regret about digging too far and understanding too much, but there's still a, a more scientific kind of investigation of what's going on. Um, and maybe some of that is reflected here because that memory is so hard to hold on to and it can be so easily lost that there's a, a duty to tr try to kind of piece it together. Um, that frustration, though, that the feeling I get throughout here is that frustration of never quite seeing what you're searching for, but finding other things, horrible things, beautiful things. You find yourself lost. You never quite get there, right? It's, it's like that anxiety dream where you never can quite get where you want to go. So, but overall, I think there's a lot of great stuff in Fungi from Yugoth. I'm not a biggest fan of his poetry i prefer the stories it's, i'm not that good at poetry anyways but i do think there are some valuable things to get out of this i think uh, lovecraft fans should probably read these poems at least once to get a sense of what they're about i do think they f serve as a nice gateway into some of his later stories which do do a lot of world a lot more world building than some of his earlier tales did so uh i guess that's going to be it so uh in the next episode i'll be starting kind of a new season a new new series uh where i'll be looking at the fiction from uh, late from like 1929 to 31 or so essentially we're talking about three stories that he published under his name uh at the mountains of madness shadow over innsmouth and the whisper in darkness not in that order uh and then we got a bunch of revisions to look at so that'll be about uh I don't know, 20 episodes or so um, coming up where we'll be looking at those stories. And then I think we'll we'll jump back to, to the letters at that point. So, uh, and f do volume four of the selected letters. So anyways, um, that's going to be it for now. So let me know what you think of Fungi from Yugoth. If there's anything I missed or you think I misinterpreted, let me know what that may be. Uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Please don't let me lose my rightful mind Cause in his graveyard words I'm
strength of 